people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name is Sam. I'm Alex. We're gonna have an episode on general anti-fascism. We're gonna discuss our article in the newest issue of Freedom on the London Anti-Fascist Assembly. We're going to have an interview with Mark Bray a bit later, who wrote Antifar. Who is going to talk to us about militant anti-fascism in America, and we're going to have a really good interview, like, review. Yeah, do a quick review of the book. Trying to find, like, kind of u- universal useful lessons. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, like, kind of make them applicable um, to anti-fascists, but, not, but also to, like, non-anti-fascists who, like, are kind of generally against fascists, but not, like, active activists. And so, by necessity, the, the, it's a, it's quite a broad book. It's not getting into too many specifics. It's taking lessons from history, and it also has chapters on. It has two chapters on history, and it has a, a couple of chapters on free speech, which is a particularly American issue, and a conclusion about white supremacy. Yeah, well, like, one of the kind of interesting things that uh, came up in the interview with him, but also I think it's kind of important for people to think about, particularly as you say in the American context, is that he defines anti-fascism as an illiberal politics, that is a politics that is indifferent to the functioning of like states or indifferent to the functioning of uh, like the kind of rights that states kind of dish out and the way that states constitute the political landscape. I think that's really essential insight and maybe kind of pushes us towards like a more radical conception of anti-fascism than just some other kind of ways people talk about anti-fascism, which is as a kind of balance of forces, right? So like we, sure, we accept that there is a right to free speech and it is couched in the language of rights. We accept there is that right, but in this particular and unique case- We're gonna take that right away. We're gonna take that right away. Well, I mean, I, I'm not a liberal and I don't think the state has any right to exist. And I'm very interested in like, um, you know, it's like end um, in like a large kind of historical, context so i mean like i'm not interested in what the state believes should or people should or shouldn't be able to do i'm not interested in this course of rights at all maybe i'm like unbelievably and stupidly callous about like the potentials of political violence but um i mean one of the most common criticisms of i guess my own position is that the it's kind of corrosive and not from a kind of like, oh, you can't milkshake people because eventually you'll end up gassing them, right? That's like a completely like absurd kind of a like um, you know kind of slippery slope. Argument. The Sam Harris point about milkshakes is uh, a dry runs for political assassination. Yeah, it's complete nonsense. Complete nonsense. Uh, but, this, this from a guy who thinks torture is okay. I mean, you're right about the key insight being like, you can be an effective anti-fascist and 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 be reviled by the like the liberal mainstream. Mm. Which, I mean, I'm, which I, I can't, I'm, I'm, I think Mark kind of went back and forth on this as well, uh, quite a lot, because he has obviously been given the role by dint of writing this book as like a kind of explainer yep. of uh, of militant anti-fascism. Um, I think that you there ha- that we have to take into account some kind of like liberal sentiments when we're doing our politics, just because we might get banned as well. You know, like we we need to be we need to be like engaging and making these arguments. That why why this particular this particular piece of violence is okay and why this particular piece of violence is not okay. Yeah. And and, and the justification behind that, because otherwise, well, you know, if the AFM became a prescribed group, that would really fuck it up for That's everybody. Anti-fascist network. Yeah. If the anti-fascist network became a prescribed group, like, um, that would make it really difficult to organise an anti-fascist movement. Yeah. 
Oh, I think I think we also have to fall into the kind of we we also have to avoid falling into the bad libertarian position or the right libertarian position here, which is that the violence of the state is uniquely and exclusively awful. And the violence that like corporations met out against their workers, or the violence that like individuals met out against other people, these uh, they're kind of bad, but they're not like kind of metaphysically bad in like an absolute sense, which is how right libertarians conceive of the state. They're like it's, it's the absolute enemy. We have to not think that. So we have to be have some sort of criteria for assessing whether or not violence is okay in certain contexts, but it cannot be with appeal, I don't think, to a discourse of rights. It cannot be with appeal to the discourse of the state. It cannot, definitely cannot work that we do anti-fascism in defence of the state. Of course, and, and, and while you're doing that activity, you have to make the argument as you go along constantly. Um, because obviously the, the state only will, will only really get repressive if it has enough pressure on it to do so um, from civil society. Like, just look how hard it was for, like, these, like, groups like Hope Not Hate to, like, get the state interested in, like, a group as, like, as, like, extreme as, like, National Action. Like, these are people who are very amenable to working with the cops, talk to them all the time. And when it came, push came to shove and Jack Renshaw was trying to, planning to murder uh, Rosie Cooper, um, the police weren't even really very interested, yep. you know? And so... We need to be making the case and making the argument, but like not in like the arenas of like say parliament or in councils or any kind of like that kind of arena. We need to be making it in like the institutions of civil society, and and that probably does mean going on like the BBC and like making a case for like punching Nazis, and, and that does mean like you know, um, I don't know, going into universities and making the case that uh, for militant anti-fascism. I guess the the place where you're getting that kind of idea, the police weren't really interested from about even Jack Renshaw, who was this uh, Nazi pedo-terrorist. I guess the place you're getting that from is from this Hope Not Hate article, where, yeah, where they mm-hmm. they were kind of talking about the, the information they gave, and the police were kind of dismissive of them. Oh, for, did, and didn't even know anything about them. I think also like, this, it's possible to take a position that is not Hope Not Hates, right? I think it's also possible to be like, maybe anti-fascists shouldn't be integrated into the security apparatus of the state. Oh, no, I agree. But, like, but like, I think that is a genuinely really ambivalent case, right? Like, if you had, you know, there are kind of all these kind of nonsense uh, cases you can, like, edge cases you can put to people, right? Like, okay, but there's, like, there's like one policeman uh, on, I don't know, like, Euston Station, and you know there's, like, a bomb that's going to destroy, kill everyone inside. Do you go and talk to that policeman and, like, tell him that the bomb is there? Or do you refuse to, like, engage with the state? Like, you know, like, this is kind of nonsense. This never happens. But but yeah, I think as a general rule, like I'm not sure that um, anti-fascism should be moving towards like engagement or integration with the police or any of that stuff. Except maybe, and this is very, very much a maybe in the most edgy of uh, edge cases. I mean, the, the thing is, we 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 kind of we're we're kind of let off let off the hook in that in that question in a way because hope on that hit does exist and is amenable to working in the state very much and in their latest magazine article their latest magazine their their, their premier article was uh, just a, a like a, a like a cry that why aren't we uh, more in touch with the police like it was just a wailing cry so yeah. hope not hit exists yeah and what we need to focus on is building a militant anti-fascist movement that would be in a position. To hear, first of all, hear about this thing happening, to be the go-to body that uh, Robin Mullin would like contact, and then to be able to stop it. Robin Mullin is the uh, national action member or ex-national action member who became a kind of whistleblower against Jack Renshaw when he started to plot to. Mm. So kill I think Rosie he Cooper. was. A, I think he was a whistleblower 
I think he made contact with Hubnate before before that the yeah. plot. But then that's when that's it, when his uh, inflation become like then, really relevant. Yeah, it became the, the threat became real. Lots of people make this claim there needs to be a kind of militant anti-fascist that is against both the cops and also against the fash. What are some of the kind of coherent, viable institutions that anti-fascism might rely on or construct? So I think there's a few. And uh, we we kind of talk about this in our article for the Freedom Newspaper. We do indeed. Leading question. Um, it's a planted question. Well, we, we, we kind of discuss the London Anti-Fascist Assembly, which is this new kind of grassroots mass movement style thing that was launched in February with a huge meeting. Um, and... I feel like it's a, it's a vehicle for like building some of these institutions. So for one thing, we kind of, we, I hope not here, the only, um, only game in town when it comes to people uh, uh, grasping on, on their comrades in the far right <clears throat> for intel, intelligence gathering, all this kind of like information. Some of the are probably sitting on a load of juicy information that would be useful to anti-fascists, but we don't have access to it. And we need to start building vehicles to gather this information ourselves. Um, so like a, like a semi-independent anti-fascist research group, for example, yeah. would be that, that kind of just gave information to any any group in the movement it deemed good would be a really useful thing. Um, not just for like intel reasons, but also for like, you know, just like safety reasons, like... If you're living in Peckham and there's a neo-Nazi living in Peckham, maybe you should know that there's a neo-Nazi living in Peckham. So that when you're putting up stickers or wearing a T-shirt, you know to be careful around there. Yeah. Um, we also need to be um, training a whole bunch of new organisers. What we've had is like anti-fascism is extremely generational in its, in its cycles of activity. It, it, almost of necessity, as it responds to a new threat, it builds up again. The far right is also generational, right? Right. Um, but what we, the difference we've seen between this moment and previous cycles is that there has always been some kind of crossover, handover. So the 43 group, um, as the 43 group is, is dying back, or at least stopped its operations after a few years once the, the initial threat of the of the post-war fascism was, was defeated. And passed it on to the 62 group? Well, the 62 group... Um, which um, the forty-three group? If you don't know them, uh, you should really look them up. They're really astonishing. There's a book by the their founder Morris Beckman called the Forty-three Group, which is an absolutely incredible book, which everyone should read. About you know, uh, Jewish veterans of World War Two coming back, seeing those other fascists organising and taking matters into their own hands very physically. Um, they, uh, they, they had a load of like, they had a, quite a small membership, but they were all like kind of trained combat veterans. So they sure knew how to fight my point is that the 40 there was still a little there was 43 group members were still around when the 62 group was setting up the 62 group transferred some of their knowledge onto um militant anti-fascists around in the 1970s which in turn was passed on to anti-fascist action in the 80s and 90s um there's 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 various lineage various like kind of threads you can trace between these activists and groups for example um uh, Red Action, which was one of the constituent members of, of AFA, um, comes out of a tradition of uh, SWP squads, which were kicked out of the SWP for being too violent. Um, they did security for they did security for gigs, and they did security for events and talks, whatever, paper sales. But they were also very, you know, proactive in their anti-fascism. <laughs> uh, they so it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't just a defensive thing. They go out Nazi hunting, basically. 
Um, and, and that lineage has kind of been broken. There's like this weird kind of moment in the anti-faction movement where there's, a, there's, there's an old guard generation, um, which, you know, you know, AFA and previous, like, and, and, and a bit after AFA, the old anti-far group from the late 2000s and stuff. And then there's this new group of anti-fascists kind of represented by, like, Laraf and Faf, who have who come so from this a is the uh, anti-fascist and against racism, fascism, a feminist anti-fascist assembly, groups like Plan C as well. Um, we come from a different tradition to Red Action, and there is a great deal of of scorn and mistrust between both sides. I feel, and this is this has not really happened before. Before, really, um, you've had these kind of like these kind of disputes in the anti-fascist movement, of course. Um, in Germany, these fantifa groups, which Mark talks about in his book, were set up as, as basically the proto, the, you know, the, the OG faf, basically. And groups in, anti-fascist groups in Europe had great arguments with the UK anti-fascist groups over this question of feminism and, and broadening out your anti-fascism and things like this. But we haven't seen this kind of, like, break, which is which, what, what we have now. I feel like, at least in London, there's a lot of mistrust between these two generations of activists, as it were. Do you think it's a generational thing, or do you think it's a split in political tendency? My sense is that the split's still in. I think it's both. I think there's a. I think one generation comes from one political tendency, and one generation comes from another. And it's very difficult, especially in something like militant anti-fascism, where you no one can really talk openly about the experiences until they're like well retired, basically, or they write anonymously in. Um, you know, writing anonymously in books and on websites and stuff. Um, so that this this kind of like um, transfer of knowledge and skills takes place very haphazardly, and yeah, we just need to reckon with that. And we need some kind of co- my point is we need some kind of like coherent training in organising in general. I mean, the left needs organising training anyway, but and specifically anti-fascist organising training as well um, is really missing. Uh, the last last thing in the article is. Um, this idea of cultural anti-fascism and build, building cultural in- institutions. I, I make reference to, to projects like Clapton, which is, you know, like a overtly anti-fascist formation, uh, non-league football formation, and so things like this left-wing YouTube movement, which is, talks a lot about fascism and anti-fascism. Um, the particular particular thing I'm thinking of is this guy, American Johnson, who runs a, a channel called Non-Compete, who went viral with this concept of the PewDiePie pipeline. Which, which we're going to talk about in a later episode. Later episode. Um, but these, these things are real, and, they, and we had an Angie in a previous episode. These things like like having real impact in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sphere which has often been claimed by the far right. And so I think Laffer could play a role in linking together these cultural projects into some kind of th- something more coherent um, and more integrated into like activist anti-fascism, if you, if you, if you will. So the London Anti-Fascists Assembly, Laffer, was set up February. What are, what what's happening in it now? So at the moment, we Laffer is still in like a, a phase of building. I would say, um, obviously, to be a mass movement, you need to have a lot of people in you, and and that isn't the case with Laffer right now. Um, a lot of that work needs to be done of reaching out to different groups, coordinating them, and. Uh, reaching out to concerned individuals, integrating them into some kind of assembly structure, whether that's replicated on the local or the or the citywide level. 
Um, the problem I, th- I think facing laughter is that the lack of something to oppose, the lack of like a concrete fascist thing to oppose, the fa- concrete far right thing, leaves you a bit directionless. And, and that's that's the eternal problem that's faced us as anti-fascists is that once a, a threat has stopped, people go off and do their own stuff, which is brilliant. People should be like, you know, doing left leftist activity, leftist organising. Um, but we need to have some kind of like be able to carry forward some kind of institutional, some movement memory, right? Which is which has been completely like has to it has to be reinvented every single time a new threat approaches. I guess there are there are two different kind of modes of coalition that you could possibly have, and they're basically really well exemplified by the two big marches back in two thousand and eighteen. So on the one hand, you have the October the thirteenth march, which is a completely uh, there was there, the kind of slogan on that march was feminists to the front, and it was true that like most people at the front were women, women. But it's also true that like there, it wasn't one sort of uh, one block of just women at the front, and then there was a block behind them, and a block behind them, and a block behind them, and a block behind them. It was one integrated march. That seems like one mode of coalition building. And the other mode of coalition building is what happened on December the 9th, 2018. And that's where there's a much more, much wider collection of people being involved. There's a momentum component to that march. There are lots of socialist groups who are on that march as well. There's the continuation of the FAF, Feminist Anti-Fascist Group. There are people from Plan C, there are people from AFN, the Anti-Fascist Network. That kind of coalition building, whereby it felt like the politics weren't necessarily entirely shared. Is that the, is, so is Laffer aiming for a coalition in the first model, where there's a kind of integrated group? Or is it aiming to be a kind of a, a mediating group that uh, brings together quite diverse political tendencies? I think what part of the problem is it hasn't decided what kind of model it wants. I think there are advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, with regard to, to groups like the SWP or Science of Racism, they're never going to be integrated to laugh at. They are they are on a certain level of organising, which means they have to pretend they're the only game in town. Everything has to be mediated with their, them and their influence. And frankly, a lot of groups that they used to used to used to work with have no more time for them. And they're slowly, slowly being more and more isolated. You see this in the in the uh, London United group that was recently set up by some right wing Labour councillor, um, which is like a, an effort by the trade union bureaucracy to like kind of break away from standard terrorism. You see this in like the the wariness that a lot of the NGOs like War on One have in relation to standard terrorism. They, they, they don't get up with them. They've burnt a lot of bridges. They would never ever work with Laffer. Laffer would be completely below them. Even though a lot, a, a few of the SWP Central Committee members did turn up to the uh, the first London Anti-Fascist Assembly and sat at the back, like, it must have terrified them because a meeting of 150 people they probably haven't haven't seen that in a little while. Ooh, um, savage. In the article, we say if Laffer is going to grow and ultimately be successful, it'll be by emphasising its function as an assembly. It's essential to bring together groups and individuals to coordinate the left response to fascism. It's clear to us that anti-fascism can't react to the activities of the far right, but must build a movement that is ready to meet the next threat when it arrives, and ultimately must be robust and widespread enough to stop the threat of fascism arising at all. Just as we need direct action or militant anti-fascism to break up fascist organising, we also need a mass movement to make anti-fascism a reflexive and sustained practice of the left. Assemblies can do this. So we're talking about assemblies, we're also talking about training, right? Right, and I think it's important to emphasise this, is that we are not trying to... Laffer is... Well, I, don't, I wouldn't want Laffer to be trying to build another anti-fascist group that only does anti-fascism. 
this, I think, is a model that is already practiced. For one thing, it's already practiced by the AFN. And for another, has kind of proved to be a bit of a dead end in some ways. Like, it's got it, it's got its uses, and I think it's really vital that the AFN exists, but there are, there are certain limits to what it can do. Um, and by bringing in bigger organisations who do other stuff, I'm thinking of things like, for example, which is not part of LAFA, but like, for example, something like London Renters Union, tapping into that kind of like organisational infrastructure, having some members uh, come to an anti-fascist thing, be involved in anti-fascism in their local area, it's it's the kind of, you know, kind of politicisation that we would we would obviously like to see from the London Renters Union. It's like, it draws people into a more broad left activity. Um, I guess that, the- that kind of bringing in these groups telling them the latest information, motivating them to go out and do anti-fascism and coordinate anti-fascism, I think is not something that's been practised for a long time, and I think it needs to come back. There's a one of the um, videos by Non-Compete, I think it is the PewDiePie pipeline, has this concept of stochastic terrorism, whereby uh, instead of having sort of coordinated cells of people who mm. will go out and definitely do things, what you do is kind of raise the level of uh, antagonism in society in general, or the kind of raise the circulation of a certain kind of idea, like fascist ideas or far-right ideas, to such an extent that you know that eventually some people, some people who already may be kind of in like you know, uh, kind of precarious situations, who are have nothing to lose, who are the most ideologically committed, those people will eventually go out and commit the kinds of random mass shootings that you kind of characterise, in some sense, the white nationalist movement. Is there not an argument on the left that lots of the most kind of effective anti-fascism or the most effective anti-fascist moments in the last five or six years have basically been not anti-fascist mobilisation at the level of organisations, but stochastic anti-fascism? People being punched, people being milkshaked, people being, whatever, humiliated in public. Mm. isn't it that the movement actually moves not by having institutions but by having a level of consciousness that can be activated at a certain moment sure but like what produces that consciousness institutions and same thing what what produces the consciousness of say the the christ kirk shooter what 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 was he referencing in his manifesto to try and instigate more people to do what he did these were these were concepts ideas memes created by institutions um, however loosely defined you want to use that term, um, so I I agree. I think part of part of creating an effective anti-fascist movement is is creating an environment that will engender an effective anti-fascist movement more than anything. And also maybe even like make kind of more um, broaden out what we mean by anti-fascism. So we don't just mean by anti-fascism getting together with like 50 other people dressing all in black uh, hiding on you know downloading signal to your phone right like we don't just mean this kind of selection of activities but we also mean like in addition to that a collection of movements that for example in the feminist anti-fascist tradition center notions of care reproduction that center that um, the kind of work of militancy that is involved in community building or the work of community building that turns into militancy I'm joined by uh, author and historian and political organiser Mark Bray. Uh, welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. Mark's uh, written many books, uh, and the one we're going to talk about today a little bit and go a bit beyond is 
Antifa, the Antifascist Handbook, which came out in 2017, a few days after Charlottesville. Right, so, extremely timely book. We're doing this episode because we want to kind of uh, discuss the North American, specifically the US anti-fascist uh, movement. Um, most of our listeners are in the UK and so um, might not like understand how it how it's like kind of comes together, how it's formed, what are the main issues in, in the movement. Um, I guess, first of all, I got I got asked, how did you um, how did you come to write the book? You you based the book off the off about sixty interviews, I think, mm-hmm. and um, anti-fascists are known to be quite tight-lipped about what they do and Indeed. who they talk to, and how how would you manage to get such an extensive range of interviews? Yeah, um, the circumstances of writing the book developed out of early twenty seventeen with Trump's victory in the election. I was increasingly interested in the development of a kind of anti-fascist presence in the U.S. left in a way that hadn't been as visible in earlier years. Um, To be brief, I wrote an article after going to the anti-Trump protests on January 20th, 2017, the one where like several hundred people got arrested and charged with, with many years in prison. I wasn't arrested. I was there. Uh, I wrote an article Someone read the article, invited me on the radio. A publisher heard the interview on the radio and said, hey, do you want to write a book based on this interview? So it wasn't something I'd been working on for a long time. Um, But the idea was to have it published soon because it was timely and because I thought it would be useful for the struggle at the moment. And so I tried to find sources, especially for post-war anti-fascism, found that apart from the British context, there really wasn't a lot written about post-war anti-fascism. In English, in French, in Spanish, very little. And so I focused on interviews, as you mentioned. So I spoke with um, more than 60 current and former anti-fascists from 17 different countries in North America and Europe. And as you rightly say, a lot of anti-fascists don't do interviews and for obvious reasons pertaining to security. Um, and so... Sure, there were people that didn't want to talk to me, and if I were in their shoes, I probably wouldn't have wanted to talk to me either. But um, given given my years of political work, being involved in Occupy Wall Street, being part of the Black Rose Anarchist Federation, the Industrial Workers of the World, having connections in the anarchist and radical movement, I knew plenty of people just already um, that I spoke to, and they put me in touch with people that they knew and so I sort of worked my networks and connections um, to speak to people. Um, there were some people who who used their real names and said, yeah, you know, whatever. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Others used pseudonyms. And some people I didn't meet in person. I spoke to over encrypted message boards. Others I spoke to in person. And that is the focus of the recent history is the experiences of anti-fascists in these countries. And I turned to you know, articles in the anti-fascist radical and sometimes mainstream press to give some context for some of the uh, the events that I write about. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned there was like a, a big upswing in anti-fascist activity with, the, I guess, the increasing prominence of, of Donald Trump as a, as a candidate and then as president. Why do you think, why do you think that was? Were people reacting against Donald Trump as, as they saw him as a fascist president or... Um, I guess what went along with his president, with his candidacy. Yeah. Um, so you know the the role of anti-fascism or in the American context, 
the, the language of anti-racism was used was a big deal in the radical left in the 90s into the 2000s. And then its prominence waned a bit. The anti-racist action network dissolved. And from having spoken to some anti-fascists who were still active during that period, they told me stories about having other leftists say, why are you wasting your time organizing against these small groups of white supremacists? You should be focusing on this or that. And so if you were to kind of make a list of the issues or forms of organizing that were getting the most attention in the American left, anti-fascism was towards the bottom during you know the late 2000s, early 20-teens. What started to change was, I think, mainly the development of the alt-right and the prominence they were receiving in the media and efforts to organize locally. So I interviewed anti-fascists in the U.S. from, I don't remember, but maybe like a dozen states. And apart from earlier groups like Rose City Antifa in Portland or NYC Antifa in, in New York or Philly Antifa, a lot of the groups that I, or members of groups that I spoke to, their groups formed in 2015, 2016, 2017, in response to an uptick in local activity and, as you mentioned, kind of a general broader sense that this was becoming a serious issue that people needed to organize around. And how do these these new groups, how did they kind of fit into each other? Um, I mean, it's a really obvious point to say this, America is a very big place. Yeah. It's not like the UK where you can drive to Leeds in five hours or whatever and you, you, people can basically whiz up and down the country. How, how were these kind of... Were they were they connected? Were they organized together? How did something, for example, like Charlottesville come about? Um, how was opposition like that kind of organized across the United States? Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a big place. Um, well, there is the Torch Network, which groups about a dozen groups from across the country and sort of took up the mantle of the anti-racist action network. And they have an annual meeting and they share resources. They, they talk to each other and so forth. Um, specifically regarding Charlottesville, I spoke with the Seven Hills Antifa from Virginia that were central to the organizing. Uh, interestingly, though, they, they really didn't do it alone. They worked with Black Lives Matter groups, um, Surge, which is sort of like a white progressive group, anarchist people of color, university students. And they worked in coalition and kind of came up with a, a collective strategy, rules of engagement, so to speak. Connected to that, other groups and individuals you know, came, you know, like there's a call out like, hey, um, this is going to happen all out to Charlottesville. I had friends who came down from New York, which is New York to Virginia is probably like a six hour drive. Um, and from other parts uh, of the East Coast came. I considered going myself, um, but for, you know, personal life reasons, it just it, it wasn't feasible for me. Um, and more broadly but you know but the other the other side of it is though it is it is a politics um that is can be very local and regional based on who your local enemy is and so conditions in the pacific northwest where there are probably the most active largest most violent groups in the u.s at this point is different from other parts of the country or in uh in the south right now a lot of the contestations of course charlottesville being one of the most famous examples being about the the Confederate legacy, the the monuments to the Confederacy. Um, you know, so it, it has a local flavor and organizing strategies and traditions have their local um, context. You describe the book, I mean, you say in the book that it's, a, it's like a history of politics and theory on the run. And you mentioned that it was, it was brought out 
it was intended to be brought out quite quickly. Yeah. I mean, you must have written over the course of a year? Uh, three months. Three months. Okay. From beginning to end, research, interviews, writing, revising, three months. It wow. was it was insane. I worked like 12 hours a day every day for three months. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Um, why, why? I mean, why yeah. do you think this was a kind of necessary book to bring out? I mean, obviously the publisher came to you, but you yeah. agreed to... I, oh, of course, of course. Well, um, it was clear to me, although it became later with Charlottesville and, and later events, it became even clearer. But even, even by early 2017, it was evident that we were facing in the U.S., a moment that could potentially be a bit of a turning point in the sense of there were efforts not only by Trump, but also at at a university level, at local levels, and trying to roll back waves of progress, you know, if you want to use that term, uh, uh, steps forward taken by social movements, anti-racist movements, uh, queer liberation movements in previous decades. And there wasn't a huge amount of knowledge about traditions and tactics and strategies of anti-fascism um, in the general public or even in in the U.S. left. And so as a European historian and as someone with a fair number of contexts in Europe, especially Western and Central Europe, I felt like I had something to offer in terms of historicizing and broadening the kind of geographical context. Um, you know, I called it a history theory and politics on the run because it was done so quickly, because as someone who is a historian for my job, we're used to measuring the, the length of projects in years, not in weeks. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I wanted to make clear that, you know, there's only so much you can do in three months, mm -hmm. but I, I felt like bringing stories together from different contexts for readers um, was valuable, even if I couldn't get into the same kinds of, you know, archival depth that I would have if I had years to do it. The point being that there's times when long-term projects are important, and this book is based off of a number of studies like that, but there's also times when we need to kind of get together what we have, make it available for people, for them to use with it as they see fit. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, this, this idea of like history is a tool to be used and to be learned from. It is, um, whether or not we want to admit it or not. And any of these political struggles we could talk about in Europe or the U.S. all rely on competing interpretations of history. You know, who are we? Who are they? What is the nation? What is gender? And so forth. And so obviously I'm a historian, so I'm like, oh, yay, history, right? But it is, it is really important. And... Um, the conversations in the U.S. about anti-fascism changed a little bit when people started to consider the possibility that, hey, maybe these struggles actually do have a connection to things that happened 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And in different parts of the right. world. Um, Although Americans are very, are very uh, uh, national focused, so they're less, <laughs> they tend to be less interested in that. But right. nevertheless, I, I, do, I tr do try to push back against the kind of narrow focus of, that a lot of people have. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I... I I read your book when it came out and I reread it for this kind of episode. Um, and something I can't, must have forgotten when I read it the first time, but really interested me, the original anti-fascist group, Anti-Racist Action, which was founded in the 1980s. In the US, right? Mm -hmm. In the US. Yeah. Um, part of their platform was a, a protection of reproductive rights, Yeah. which I thought was super interesting and linked to a lot of the stuff you talked about later in the book about Fantifa and feminist anti-fascist. Sure. Um, and I... I 
I just wondered if you could give a bit more details about about why that was there in their platform. Yeah. Why it was so prominent. Um, obviously, in in London, we recently had the formation of the feminist anti-fascist. Yeah. Uh, we had a women's-led uh, anti-fascist demonstration. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I wondered if you could talk about that for a little. Bit. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't part of the initial platform, but then again, the initial program, you know, was. Um, you know, the groups evolved. Uh, but by the 1990s, uh, my sense is that the, that it had a lot to do with the context, especially in the Midwest, where uh, abortion, uh, reproductive rights were a really central focus of contestations with um, the evangelical right-wing movement. And, you know, it was an effort to broaden the conversation and, and, you know, that's, I'm sure we'll get into that in other ways as we continue to talk, but that's one of the interesting things I think about anti-fascism as a political focus is I feel like the more you poke it, the more it opens up like layers of an onion. And so, you know, feminism, feminism reproductive rights are, are central to, to that as well, which is not to say that, you know, anti-racist action, quote unquote, got it right around gender politics. There were, there were a lot of um, problems with misogyny um, as there have been with you know, resistance movements and societies in general for forever. But, um, you know, I do, I do focus on that in my presentations when I talk about this history, because it is, I think, sort of, um, an invitation to think more broadly about the, the politics. Well, this, this, this idea of like gender in anti-fascism is a, is a really like rich and interesting one. Um, there's, especially in the UK, we had a, we, anti-fascist action, which was the predecessor to what's ne- what's there nowadays, um, was essentially like a lot of a lot of men drinking in pubs and having having fights with other men. Yeah, I think it, I think it's valuable political activity, but is obviously exclusive to a, a large range of people. Uh, so yeah, I think that's a super interesting thing to be thinking of going forward. Anti-fascists wherever they are. I wonder if you could speak a little bit in the context of. Like the um, uh, the American right, the American far right, mm-hmm. um, which seems to me that in the UK we kind of exported all our racism to like countries around the world in our empire, and in America, you know, from the, I guess from the the KKK onwards or earlier slavery and slave trade uh, was kind of foundational to the to the to the nation to the US. Right. Um, uh, and I wondered how how did how do like. Um, uh, the, how does the fight against white supremacy uh, interact with anti-fascist groups? And yeah, yeah. Well, um, as you rightly point out, you know, the history of the United States is colonialism, genocide, imperialism, slavery, white supremacy, um, and so in that way, you know, one of the things I try to emphasize with the book and with my talks, and I think is especially the case in the United States, is thinking about fascism as sort of one manifestation of a broader politics of imperialism and white supremacy. And in that same vein, anti-fascism is sort of one manifestation of resistance to, to these broader trends. And so um, in that way, I think that it's it's important to situate it within context of resistance to the Klan, Ida B. Wells, um, you know, Deacons for Defense, Black Panther Party, uh, and traditions that sometimes referred to the to, to anti-fascism, and the Black Panthers spoke about anti-fascism. Other groups didn't, um, and that's I think one of the reasons why anti-racist action chose the language of anti-racism rather than anti-fascism. It just you know it's it 
to the front to their mind and i under i think that they were right you know it just sort of rang truer to an american audience and it kind of gets around some of the, the kind of interesting but also sometimes annoying debates and conversations that happen today about like well what is fascism who are the fascists with anti-racism at least in the u.s it's more of a just kind of like well, you know, you have to be have your head in the sand to not think that there's issues with racism. Although there are people with their heads in their sand, in the sand. Um, and so, <clears throat> I think because of that context, there, you know, anti-racism, anti-fascism in the U.S. has pretty much always had that kind of racial analysis connected to um, contestations with the far right to the political project. You know, my sense is that given different histories of race in Europe, in some contexts in Europe, the role of racism, anti-racism vis-a-vis anti-fascism was at times more of a kind of project of construction and inter-dialogue in a way that wasn't as much the case in the U.S., although the fact that like the early ARA crews largely came out of punk and skinhead scenes meant that they tended to be on the whiter end, although the initial group of baldies that, that kicked off ARA had um, people of color in their group. So I don't want to overstate that. But I think that, that that those traditions make a difference. And so, you know, today, white sup- contestations around uh, fighting against white supremacy are at the center of what anti-fascism, anti-racism is and you know i was just in spain recently and it's interesting that the left in spain tends to use racismo racism and the the phrase supremacia blanca or white supremacy is not used as often and i think that i, I how is it here what how, what's the relationship between those two terms um i think there's there's i think there's a real split mm-hmm. between a, like an anti-fascist politics and an anti-racist politics um, and I think for a long time, anti-fascism has been seen as like a, a, political, a political defense of, of working class organizing and organizations against, um, you know, fascist groups looking to shut the left down. And anti-racism has, I mean, there's been lots of interaction through the years, but it's been kind of separated out from that. Um, and so you see that in kind of uh, the kind of analysis that really... Uh, Prioritizing his class over mm-hmm. over race, yeah, and it, 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 it kind of made little sense to me reading back through the history of anti-fascism in the UK because you know the, the National Front were you know all about keeping Britain white and attacking migrants and forced deportations, right? And I, I don't think you can, I don't think it's easy to separate out these two, these two politics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I agree, um, and it's important to see. Um, you know, you can't really talk about racism and white supremacy without capitalism and vice versa. Um, because of the importance of like the civil rights movement, black liberation struggles, indigenous struggles in the U.S., there has been a very strong focus on race in the American left since the 60s mm-hmm. to the point where there are times when there have been groups trying to push back and be like, hey, maybe the role of class actually has been pushed to the margins more than it ought to in this conversation. So, you know, it's kind of in a certain sense, maybe inverse. But, you know, as I was saying, I think it is important to talk about white supremacy explicitly, which is not to say that there's any problem with the term racism, but um, especially in the U.S. context, not only because it it sort of 
illuminates aspects of the history of the country, but also because I think um, if you really want to understand racism as a historical product of the kind of creation of scientific notions of race, Mm -hmm. you have to understand it in terms of the white supremacist uh, imperial project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's always this tendency inside the liberal mainstream of, um, of, of kind of racist acts being like, moral failings slippages that that should be condemned and moved on from and, and not seeing them as expressions of like uh, and expressions of like wider structural racism that's happening right it's seen in very individual terms and also there's a tendency um that the right uses in the u.s and, and maybe over here too of taking any kind of issue of justice and making it abstract analytical divorce from context and history so that the historical struggle against white supremacy and imperialism goes from this very historically situated struggle with power dynamics running in, in a, one direction mm-hmm. to abstract analytical understandings of racism where it's whenever one individual does something bad to another individual and they happen to be of a different race and they use like words or symbols to prove that that was the reason why they did it. And that's all it is. And, you know, there's examples in every form of political issue for example um i don't know i'm drawing a blank but you know that, that's what happens with that and, and other things yeah uh, you i mean you definitely see that dehistoricization uh, you do you see that here as well mm-hmm. um and you see it in, like groups like generation identity or the identitarian movement which like kind of white people are now being created as the, the new oppressed group right attacked from islam or third world countries or whatever and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to, I, this literally just occurred to me, but it's interesting to think of the Rights Project as, as sharing away history and all the, the whole historical context. Right, and, and they have an opening to do that because liberals like to think of justice issues in terms of this kind of abstract, kind of legalistic thinking to say, oh, you know, white people are sort of one of the peoples in this imagined kind of universe of essential biological racial identities Mm -hmm. and so therefore why not if there can be a black power why not a white power um and so in that way the far right has tried to infiltrate discourses of equality and diversity even though they have no investment in it in those Mm -hmm. values and i I guess it kind of puts the state as as ultimately something that is fair and will decide fairly in in like matters of who gets to go to university who gets jobs who goes to prison and Obviously, that's not true. Um, and, you know, the, the state, the legal system, and of course, behind the scenes, you know, rationality and rational discourse and debate. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that society will come to the right outcome if we just sort of have a good chat about it, which mm-hmm. hasn't been the case most of the time. I'm sure someone could find some example somewhere of well, agreeing their differences. That. Well, I mean, you know, obviously, if you want to dig into it a little, discourse never occurs without context of power and struggle so yeah <laughs> how important do you think it is to be explaining militant anti-fascist tactics and groups to like i guess a wider a wider public or you know i, I read a, an interview with you in vox uh where the interviewer kept going back to how anti-fascist actions might, might damage the democratic party and you kept having to say well they don't care about that because they're not they're not they're not invested in the democratic party uh, you've kind of taken on some of that some of that role i guess yeah 
how do you feel about that and and do you think it's an important thing to do yeah that that's an interesting issue and i have mixed feelings about it because obviously i have done some of that in the course of speaking about my book um so on the one hand it is useful when people support anti-fascist work um, it is useful. Like, for example, in the context of the U.S., arguably the most successful tactic in recent years has been doxing. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, doxing works if people think it's really terrible that you're a Nazi. If mm -hmm. people don't, then it doesn't work as well. Mm -hmm. um, that having been said, it's not necessarily always the case that people need to like anti-fascism or like anti-fascists for anti-fascist organizing to work. Mm -hmm. So they can hate Nazis and not like anti-fascists, and doxing can still work. Um, they can think that, for example, um, the uh, black-clad anti-fascists who smashed up windows at UC Berkeley to protest Miley Yiannopoulos in early 2017, people can think that's terrible, and it can still be a successful tactic that kicked off a chain of events that made Miley Yiannopoulos unable to really have a public presence anymore. Right. Um I spoke to um, an anti-fascist in Madrid who summed up this issue in a very interesting way. He said, more or less, um, I'm an anti-fascist and I'm a union organizer. Mm -hmm. And as long as we beat the fascists in the streets, uh, I don't care if people hate me when I'm wearing my mask. Because when I take it off, I organize in my community and we build a better world that way. And so in that way, this person was sort of putting forward the notion that not all forms of political struggle need to fit in the same box, mm -hmm. nor do they need to be um, assessed from the same vantage point, which is usually uh, that of the sort of public opinion in quotes. But there is no one single public opinion. There's always multiple kind of constituencies in society. And so in terms of the context, for example, of anti-fascist organizing in the U.S., my sense is that people who have experience or, um, you know, thinking about having to defend themselves, who have experience with racism or transphobia or homophobia, um, have been more sympathetic to the politics of self-defense. Um, and in that way, you know, that there are different kinds of publics, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, if you look at the history of militant anti-fascism after the war, it developed around forms of struggle that were not usually aspiring to be mass movements. Mm -hmm. That was probably particularly the case in in terms of the, the German autonomous movement, for example. It was a kind of rejection of that kind of political perspective. So the kind of critique that comes from the media, oh, hey, if you dress in black and beat up Nazis, that's not going to create a mass movement, is missing the point that it, that kind of form of struggle was not designed to do that. Mm -hmm. And it can be successful even if it doesn't do that. Um, but, you know, to sort of spin the circle around one more time, um, especially in the context of the development of these, um, quote-unquote, respectable far-right parties gaining entry into parliament, uh, I talk in the, in the third chapter of my book about the struggle against, quote-unquote, pinstripe Nazis that seems to many anti-fascists to suggest not necessarily abandoning earlier strategies and tactics, but finding ways to either build coalitions or develop new platforms for resistance, or think of ways that anti-fascism can be not just sort of a niche form of activity, but 
um, a common sense perspective in society and an obvious form of resistance. So to kind of summarize my conflicted feelings, no, I don't think that most people need to like militant anti-fascism for militant anti-fascism to be successful and important. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, it is helpful and important for us to, I think, promote a few concepts. The, the notion of no platform for fascism, I think, is is important to generalize as widely as possible. Mm-hmm. And the legitimacy of self-defense, I think, is also important to try and push. Because even if um people are negative about certain actions those kinds of concepts being generalized i think are useful and um so in that way i think that that it is important to promote the notion that we need to organize against the far right if people don't like militant anti-fascism find a different way to struggle there's there's other things that you can do to try and shut down the far right and build a better world Hmm. and it's it's interesting the 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 quote from the madrid anti-fascist uh talking about his dual role as an anti-fascist and then a, as a union organiser. And it's, it is important to emphasise that, you know, anti-fascists are not just a bunch of master vigilantes going around looking for Nazis to beat up. They are doing a lot of different right. other stuff all the time, and they would much rather be doing that rather than exactly. putting themselves in risk. In- exactly. And, you know, I'm sure much of your listenership is like, well, duh, you know, <laughs> we are those people, we know. Um, and that's something that that leftists and radicals know is that you know we wear, we wear, we wear multiple hats most of the time, but from the mainstream perspective, there was well, mainstream politics assumes that politics is all just a list of single issue struggles, right. and that you can look at an anti fascist and say, okay, this is someone who is only this and does no other no no other stuff. And so I would point out at book talks like, hey. I'm talking to a room of liberals and progressives and you love to occupy, right? You love black lives matter. Hey, guess what? There's some of the same people um, just doing different things. You may not be familiar with that, but just, you know, wrap your head around that. Something that is, I think is translating across from uh, uh, American politics. This is these battles around free speech. Mm. And in the U S obviously free speech is like enshrined in the constitution and it is obsessed over constantly um and we we really don't have that kind of we don't we we in the past we haven't really had that kind of uh idea or kind of political kind of uh concept to that we kind of rally behind um and and as it's as it's kind of bleeding over the atlantic uh, i wondered if you could talk about how anti-fascists kind of negotiate that kind of very difficult balance they have to make because you you are shutting down a lot of speech when you do anti-fascism and how 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 is that justified um yeah um you're right that that's a huge deal um my sense is that generally a lot of anti-fascists in the u.s try to argue that anti-fascism is not anti-free speech some of the ways that that's done is by saying hey we're not shutting down speech we're shutting down organizing Mm -hmm. another way is to say the constitution limits what the government can do to speech we're not the government we're not trying to propose laws um personally i i'm not fully convinced by those arguments i do think that when you show up 
to a Klan rally and you shut it down, you are stopping the Klan from speaking. But I think that that's great. Not that not that anti-fascists disagree with the great part, but to me, so I have a chapter about it in my book. And you're you're to take a step back. You're right that there's an obsession over free speech, but there's an obsession only about certain aspects of the conversation, obviously, because there isn't an outcry about limits around libel or copyright infringement or pornography or what. Like, right. there's a long list of infringements, and so the notion that like shutting down the Klan is the greatest threat to free expression um, is never a conversation that's had in the context of these other limits and infringements that that happen. My Two cents for what it's worth is that um, it's not like a winning – you're not going to win uh, arguing with liberals about s- trying to make them believe that shutting down uh, a neo-Nazi demonstration is not shutting down their speech. But you can have an argument and a conversation about, hey, let's see this – let's see anti-fascism as a political struggle. Let's see – let's understand that the far right is – an aspiring genocidal threat and that this conversation is important now, but wouldn't be important if they got the chance to do it again. Mm -hmm. And that, that many of the people who are raising the loudest cries about speech are those with who are least um, being uh, attacked or threatened by the far right. Um, And, you know, ultimately I think if you think about rights or if if you don't like the language of rights, the kind of reality of speech, it's one thing to talk about the speech of a Nazi or a fascist. It's another to say, okay, well, if you let Nazis and fascists organize, how are they limiting the ex- free expression and the the sort of sense of security of a vast majority of our communities? Mm-hmm. So in practice, uh, I think that even if you want to play the game of speech, in practice, you can see the results. Um, and this has been a big thing um, on campuses, I think, in particularly um, because there's this, you know, the far right push this notion of cultural Marxism on campuses and that the professors are all left. Um, and while they blow it way out of proportion, there is something to be said for the degree to which universities have embraced the rhetoric of diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they try to, as I said earlier, infiltrate that to establish white nationalism as like a legitimate perspective on campus. And um, they've characterized resistance to that as sort of being, you know, the, the revenge of the politically correct. And so I think part of this conversation is trying to push back against that kind of dismissive label. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And yeah, talking about the consequences of speech is also an important thing as well. Yeah. And, you know, the importance of that in anti-fascism seems to have everything to do with where people are um as i talk about in the book you know eastern european or southern european anti-fascists just like well that's an american consideration um and americans can't fathom that in much of the world that's really not the focus of this conversation i think we have to wrap up i know you're going to do another talk uh so thank you for coming and doing the episode i like a lot of new things um and uh thank you for listening as well um i know i kind of shy away from this and it's usually sam who's pushing the uh patreon and the and the soundcloud or whatever but it really does help us to um share the episodes with your friends and and followers and retweeters and all that kind of stuff uh, you can put you can do our work of promotion for us we have a patron as well if you want to support the show um anything you give will give us more time more resources to do our own research and 
and it's always really appreciated. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, thanks. Been a blast. See you next time. 12 Rules. Yeah, it is.